This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a sermon from George Robertson. George Robertson is the senior pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2017 at the PCA General Assembly in Greensboro, North Carolina. Please turn with me to one more passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 6. I have an additional passage of Scripture because I asked someone to look over my sermon, someone I would trust, give me the true, a true reflection, true critique on my sermon, someone older and wiser. And uh, I did, and he did. And he said, uh, you make true points, they just don't come from your text. <laughs> so I asked Brother Sylvester to read the text that my points come from. And then I'm taking moderator's privilege, and I think they also come from this passage. The Old Testament, a similar passage, Exodus chapter 6. You remember Moses has been called by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's protested. Then we have this strange passage. We know that... These are the parameters, these verses, verses 13 to the end of chapter 6, or verse 12 to the end of chapter 6, not because of the subject headings. We know, don't we, that the Bible wasn't originally divided in chapters and verses. That came later in the 13th and 15th centuries. But but uh, they had these stylistic devices by which they marked out pericopes, different, different sections of Scripture. One of them was inclusio. You'd make a statement at the beginning of a passage, and then you would indicate that the passage was ending by repeating the same words. You find it in the Psalms a lot. Psalm 135, praise the Lord. And then the Psalm, it ends with praise the Lord. Well, here's the inclusio of this passage. Look at verse 12, chapter 6. Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, Why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? And then down at the end of the passage, uh, when Moses says, verse 30, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? This is the passage I want to read to you. Let's read what's in between. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carni. These were the clans of Reuben. Sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. Now look down to verse 23. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Amenadab, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this same Moses and Aaron, to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was this same Moses and Aaron. When the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderfully powerful things from this portion of your gospel, spoken by your servant Moses in anticipation of our great Christ. Open our eyes. Encourage my brothers and sisters this evening as fellow ministers, ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus. Would you remind us? Would you impress upon us? Would you convince us through this supper especially that we are qualified by the gospel for this so great ministry you have given to us? In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said together, Amen. Patrick Henry Hughes was born with a rare syndrome that left him without eyes. His limbs cannot bend. They can't straighten. They can only contract. His arms are permanently contracted like this. His legs likewise, meaning that he can't, he can't walk. And he can use his fingers. He can use his lips, but he can't extend his arms. His parents, of course, were heartbroken at this, this apparent tragedy that had come into their lives. And, but by nine months, Patrick Henry demonstrated that he had savant abilities. He had, he had this, this a gift of absorbing language, which continues to the day. And he had this gift of music. One day, I guess by accident, his dad had sort of set him up against the piano and he, he started pecking away a simple melody that he had heard. Then his dad would test him. He's kind of a musician himself. He would play a note and Patrick Henry could imitate it. And by one year old, one year of life, he could, he could play songs. He sailed through high school academically never walked, 
never could extend his hands, but had a passion for music. And it was recognized by Dr. Henry Byrne of the University of Louisville, the director of the marching band. He sent a letter to Patrick Henry and said, I want you on my marching band to play the trumpet. Patrick Henry has a great sense of humor. He said, uh, I can play the trumpet, but how in the heck am I going to march? His dad had made a promise many years before, or years before. He said, Patrick Henry, of course, he didn't understand him at the time. Patrick Henry, you and I are never going to play baseball together. We're never going to play, play tag football together, but I am going to walk with you through life. Whatever you do, I'm going to be with you. And if it's music, I'm in it with you. Patrick Henry, if Dr. Byrne believes that you should be in the marching band, I'll be in the marching band with you. He uprooted, moved, got a job with UPS so that he could work the graveyard shift so that he could be on time to go with Patrick Henry to all of his classes beginning at 8 in the morning and then to be there at practice in the afternoon for the marching band because his dad pushed the wheelchair while Patrick Henry plays the trumpet. He would race around the field pushing the wheelchair. If he ever got out of line, the others would help and get him back in line. It's one of those classic disability stories that inspires us, isn't it? One of those stories that is, is, is amazing in its hope for those who we call sometimes falsely disabled. But like all of those stories too, there is another hero in it. There is always a self-sacrificing, loving helper. The kind that we read about, like the, the Hoyt, Team Hoyt. Mr. Hoyt has pulled and carried and, and swum his son for 37 years in Ironman competitions and marathons. It's the, it's the story of a man who has emptied his, his retirement account in order to find a cure for his daughter's rare disease. It's the story of a man and his wife who emptied all of their savings accounts in order to help their Down syndrome son realize his dream of starting a, a restaurant called the friendliest place in the world. A disability story is not only about someone with a disability. A disability story is about the other someones in their lives too who lovingly enable them. The gospel is a disability story. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ who enables all of us disabled, broken sinners to participate in and accomplish His will. It's the way He gets His glory. God leverages our despised, weak, and foolish states that he might get all the glory. That's in this passage. It's in this passage, I think, first of all, in verses 12, 28, and 30, where Moses is identified, I believe, as a despised person, or at least he thinks he is. Moses, it seems to me, has a physical disability. When he says... 
how am I supposed to give this message when I can't speak well? I think he's claiming a physical speech impairment, impediment. I think that because that's what the early church thought for the first maybe six or seven centuries, until in the Middle Ages, uh, a new interpretation was put forth that maybe he was complaining that he was not eloquent, that he had no rhetorical skill. But before that, the church understood by tradition and by history that Moses was complaining of a speech impediment. He says in chapter 4, verse 10, the first time he gives the the excuse, he says, I have a heavy mouth. In this passage that we read, he says he has uncircumcised lips. A heavy mouth. In recent years, Assyriologists have discovered Akkadian text, Akkadian medical text, which provide a, 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 a diagnosis of heavy mouth and prescriptions for physicians treating heavy mouth. Maybe that's the same impediment that Moses had. And it makes sense too in chapter four when Moses uh, complains to God and he says, I, how am I supposed to speak? I have a heavy mouth. And God says, who made the mouth? Who makes people mute or deaf? Who gives sight to the blind? He describes physical impediments. I think Moses is claiming a, a physical impairment. But I think that Moses is claiming a physical impairment as a, div- as a diversion from his real shame. You know, in recent decades, there's another, there's a, a new, a newer sub-discipline in literary studies, it's even in exegetical studies called disability studies studying ancient texts where disabilities are described or discussed and and casting new light on them. How were disabilities understood in various cultures in various ages? And it's fascinating to apply the same insights to Scripture. And this text concerning Moses is one that's fascinating to experts in disability studies. And one thing that, that uh, those experts have noticed in ancient disability texts is that often the protagonist of a story would claim a physical impediment in order to divert people's attention from his or her deeper shame. In other words, they would, they would rather say, I'm tongue-tied, I have a cleft palate, I have, I'm blind, as a diversion that somehow is more socially acceptable than some other deeper shame, especially in a shame-based culture. Well, think about Moses. Moses, of course, was rescued from the water by the Egyptians taken into the royal household. He was trained to be a prince of Egypt. He seems to have done very well in that, in that uh, role, and he was quite popular and so forth. He seemed to appreciate it even after he left Egypt because the shepherdesses who noticed him first at the well took him to be an Egyptian. Maybe because he still looked like Marlon Brando or something. He still had the waxed eyebrows and all, but he still had his robes on. He still looked like an Egyptian. Maybe he talked like an Egyptian. 
He said he was an alien in a foreign land. He took up with Midianite, a Midianite family. He initially responded to God practicing his, his story by saying the God of your fathers, as if he was already speaking to the Hebrews. He failed to circumcise his child. He seemed quite at home in his Egyptian identity. But he was rejected by the Egyptians, or so he feared. And then we know that he was he loved his Jewish people too. And one day he snapped and killed the Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew slave. He loved his Jewish brethren. So here is Moses in this conflicted state. God, perhaps he's saying in his heart of hearts, I don't want to go to Egypt because I will be rejected by those who, whom I love. And I don't want to go to Egypt either because Hebrews are there and I'll be rejected by them too. I do not want to go to my own because my own will receive me not. But he's not going to say that because that's too painful to admit. So he says, I'm not going. I've got a speech impediment. It is true even today that that can be a method of coping. I just finished a, a powerful book by a woman named Edna Hong. And the book was loaned to me. It's called The, the uh, Bright Valley of Love. Loaned to me by one of my parishioners whose son is, is, uh, has a, a mental disability. It's obviously a treasured book to her. It's well-worn, and it's a story of Friedrich von Bodelschwing's work in Germany during uh, right before the Nazi era. In the 1920s, he started the Bethel House Movement. He was a Lutheran pastor, and with his Lutheran deaconesses, he started this Bethel House Movement, and they welcomed uh, the, the children and adults whom the society didn't want or couldn't take care of. Most of them they called generically epileptic, so they had various kinds of disabilities. And the central figure in that book is a, is a little boy named Gunther. Gunther was forced into his grandmother's home. She was embarrassed of him. She was aggravated by him, so she hid him away in a room. She pulled the curtain. She locked the door. She, pretend, she never admitted to anyone that he was there until sometime some mean boys broke in and discovered him and made fun of him. But she told him every day, you're nothing. You're a nothing. And the fact that you smile at me when I tell you that you're a nothing shows just how bad a nothing you are. One day, Gunther became too much for her to take care of. She took him and dropped him off at the Bethel house. And Pastor von Bodelschwing took him into his arms and looked him in the eye, the first time anyone had ever looked him in the eye, and he said, I love you, and you are a child of God. You're going to do quite well here. Gunther, who later is able to talk and write, said, you know, 
It was easy for us to admit that we were epileptics. It was easy for us to admit we were loony, he said. Easy for us to admit that we were not able to walk, that we couldn't talk. But what we cried ourselves to sleep at night with every evening was that someone in our family rejected us. We were despised. I wonder how many of you feel despised. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view, and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. A few years ago, I went to the fellowship gathering on Wednesday night. One of the best things that's ever happened to this denomination. Thank you, Mike Kanjan and others who put that on every year. A couple of years ago, I went and I was a little bit late. I came in the back. I saw one of my very good friends, a former student who was crouched down in the back with his back against the wall, far away from where the party was happening. I said, what are you doing there? Why aren't you over here? I don't belong there. I don't belong there. What are you talking about? Look at all those people, he said. Look at all those guys out there. Everybody wants to slap their back and shake their hand. They've got churches that are growing. They're writing books. They're being asked to preach in other places. Their churches are growing. And I'm a pastor of a failing church. I'm a failure. I don't belong here. He got up to leave. I sat down next to him and I said, I'm not going to let you leave. I'm going to show you something about this crowd. I didn't confess any of your sins that you've told me in secret. Just the ones you've said in public. I said, you see that guy over there? Former moderator, a professed alcoholic. See that guy? Just fired for the second time within a short period of time. You see that guy there? Struggles with same-sex attraction. That guy battles depression. That guy ruined his marriage with an affair. That guy's father was his pastor. His pastor father ran off with a woman and wrecked the church and wrecked his life. And there, over there, is another former moderator who's going to speak tonight about addiction, his own addiction. And then there's me, and you know how messed up I am. And then there's you. And is there anyone that I've mentioned that is worse off that you're worse, that you're worse off than they are. Do you belong or not? He had a grin. He entered into the island of misfit toys with the rest of us. <laughs> despised. You feel despised? Oh, God loves, God loves to take in despised people. 
and leverage his glory in you. Maybe you're weak. And what is this, what is this, uh, this ancestry after all? Why this genealogy in the middle of this story? It's a, it's a fast paced story up to this point. It's very exciting. The people of Israel have been longing for this day. They've been begging for a deliverer. And finally, God has raised up Moses. He's gotten him to the point that he's ready to call him. He's sending him back into the, into the, into the, into Egypt. He's going to lay the people out in the Exodus. It's just getting exciting. It's, it's like one of those movies that you're watching. It's like you're at the movies and you're watching a movie about a superhero. And he's just rescued the damsel who has been thrown out of the window and he's grabbed her by the fingernails as he's holding on to her and the wind is blowing, the rain is pounding down and the monster's about to get her and he's almost, he's almost giving up, almost ready to drop her and then it breaks in and says, do you suffer with reflux? <laughs> Trinexium. This seems like that kind of intrusion. The story's going great. And then we get this boring genealogy. Or is it there purposely? We know the answer to that. It's there for one to show us that God uses also not just the despised people, but the weak people. Now, who would the weak people, I mean, the foolish people, who would the foolish people be? According to the Jews, the foolish people would would have been the Gentiles because they don't have revelation. And what does, what does Moses say about his family history here? Moses obviously doesn't know how to write a hagiography about himself. He puts in this, in this, in this, this story, this detail that he, that someone was the son of a Canaanite woman. He has Gentile blood in his line. He has mixed blood in his line. He has foolish blood in his line. But God had to teach him another story as he has to teach us. This is a good point to quote my good friend, Dr. Irwin Entz. He says in his dissertation, what developed from Babel is that our ethnic identity within our people groups feels primordial. Put another way, the new normal of the multi-ethnic church in the New Testament moves the center of focus to Jesus Christ and finding our identity in him helps avoid cultural idolatry. In our ethnocentric churches, differences in preference get framed in absolute terms. In other words, our blackness, our whiteness, our Asianness, our Latinoness still tends to be at the center of our identity, even after faith in Jesus Christ. But only Jesus is able to bear the weight of the center. Your blackness cannot bear it. Your whiteness cannot. Your Americanness cannot. Your whateverness cannot. What's further? God alone has the wisdom, power, and grace to weave the tangled threads of different people with different cultures, customs, and languages into a single tapestry of glorious beauty. It goes on to say it's the, Im the image of God is actually reflected 
in the diversity of our world. Do you think that the color of your skin or the shape of your eyes disqualifies you from ministering in this church in particular? Or have you realized that you are a necessary tile in God's beautiful mosaic? There would be no Moses without this Canaanite. And the beauty of God's portrait called the image of God and the kingdom of God, the beauty of that portrait would be missing something. It will be missing. It would be missing something if your color was not a part of it, if your shape, if your body size, if your disability, ability were not there. There's another reason I think this genealogy is here, not only to show us that that God uses the despised things to leverage his glory, the glory of his gospel, and the foolish things to leverage the, the glory of his gospel. But God uses the weak things too. The majority of this passage describes Jewish ancestors. Now, the Israelites would have been viewed as weak. They were viewed as weak by the Gentiles, especially by these, by these Egyptians, because their God, after all, had been conquered. So they were weak. They had been enslaved. And then Moses, what is he thinking? He's, he's listing his ancestry as Jewish. He's coming out with it. But what is he thinking by the ones he includes in this ancestry? Why in the world did he have to include cousin Korah? Why did he have to bring that skeleton out of the closet? Can you remember Korah? Number 16, who led the rebellion, 250 people said, Moses, you've gone too far. We need a new leader. God puts up a test and says, here's who's going to be the leader. You both offer sacrifices, whoever, whichever sacrifice I accept, that's the one who's going to be the leader, the other I'm going to kill. Korah and Moses offer the sacrifices. God accepts Moses, and the earth opens and swallows Korah and the 250. But then... Even worse, the very first person mentioned, look at this, verse 13, verse 14, the sons of Reuben. He could have begun in any one of 12 places, but he picked Reuben. Reuben, the first adult act Reuben committed was to sneak into his father's home and sleep with his concubine, Bilhah. That's what he was known for. Well, Reuben speaks up again when Joseph is annoying his brothers and his brothers say, we're going we're to kill him. And Reuben sticks up for him and says, no, let's throw him in the cistern instead. Now, Reuben is the oldest. Reuben is the oldest brother. Reuben should have said, this is foolish talk. I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. You're going to put up with Joseph. He's one of our brothers. He'll grow out of it. But instead he says, oh, I've got a compromise. Let's throw him in the well. And his plan is that he's going to come back and rescue him at night. Why does he do that? Because he's a coward. 
Then he comes back at night. His brothers don't respect him enough to tell him what they're going to do, so they, they, they sold him while Reuben was out somewhere. And Reuben comes back. He's gone. And later, when they are afraid that God is judging them for their sin and, he, and Joseph is requiring things of them, they don't know it's Joseph yet. You remember what Reuben says? They're having all the difficulties. You remember what Reuben says? I told you this would happen. I didn't want to do this. And then it gets even better. Reuben goes home. He has to convince his dad to let Benjamin go back with them. Joseph's only favored child left, or so he, uh, Jacob's only favored child left of Rachel, so he thinks. And they're, they're begging Jacob, there's only one way that he's going to give us this, this grain. It's if you send Benjamin. And Reuben steps up and he says, I'll tell you what, if we don't bring Benjamin back, you may kill my two sons. It's a powerful stroke of idiocy. <laughs> Here is Reuben the coward, the holier than thou, the blame shifter, and now this. Why Reuben? Because God wants to be able to say, this same Aaron and Moses, they're the ones I said, bring out the Israelites. These men who have this kind of shame and sin in their past, I use them. I've been at this a while, almost 30 years, this General Assembly thing. And I know how we think about moderator's sermons. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, you'll sit around the breakfast table and you'll say, what was the secret message he was trying to get out? <laughs> is he sending some code about a certain overture. He's for drinking. He's against drinking. He's, he's against plastic communion cups. He's for glass communion cups. What was the secret embedded message? And I'm going to tell you, you're not going to find it. All I want this evening to do is to compel you to come to Christ as he offers himself to you in this table. Now, I made the mistake of asking somebody else's opinion on this sermon before I got here. Another person I trusted would give me the truth, and he, he said about the original illustration that I wrote to end with, he said, um, I think you should scrap that and compel them personally. I knew what he was saying. See, he's a dear friend. He was saying, you should tell them just how weak and despised and foolish you see yourself to be and are. You should share with them that you have struggled 
most of your life and most of your ministry with depression and anxiety. That's a shame for me. Oh, I tell my people that come to me to find pastoral comfort and so forth, it's no shame, but I feel it to be a shame. And people call me, on average, once a month, a minister calls me, and he doesn't ask me what I've longed for someone to call me and say, Dr. Robertson, I understand that you are an expert in sacramental preaching in 18th century Presbyterianism. No one's ever made that call. They say instead, George, I've heard you share openly your battle with depression and anxiety. Can you share your experience with me? When they do, it reminds me of this statement by Janet Nelson. Mental illness, despite the many recent advances in scientific understanding and medical treatment, retains about it the musty and unpleasant aura of the asylum. And no one, from bioethicists to the mentally ill themselves, cares to visit that place if it can be avoided. I don't like visiting that place. It's like opening the door to an asylum but because so many have for me, I walk it with others. And though I've told my people, you know, God in his common grace has given us medication to help if that's warranted, if that's diagnosed, you shouldn't feel shame in taking that. And yet, when my doctor a few years ago took me by the shoulders, my physician friend, this godly man, took me by the shoulders and looked me in the eye and said, because I love you, I want you to feel normal again. I'm going to give you this slight dosage. I wept all the way home, confessing my sin, that I had failed God with my faith and that I was an unworthy minister of the gospel. And then a few years ago at General Assembly, when one of my dear friends found out about the latest installment of my severely dysfunctional family, extended family, the pain it was causing at the time, he pinned me against the wall and he said, I better not see you again without your having gone to a Christian counselor. You better, when I ask you, the next time I see you, your answer to my question, have you been to a Christian counselor, it better be yes. But he's a little crazy. So 11 months and three weeks later, I made the appointment so that I can answer yes at General Assembly. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for common grace of medical compounding. I am grateful for God's special grace in his servants and Christian counselors. But I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, the children in this place who have professed faith, I want to tell you, my greatest help has come from the word and sacrament, the word preached and sealed by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as I have been dragged there by my vocation at times or by sitting in General Assembly at times. It's in that place, it's in that experience, mysterious as it is, when Jesus touches us in some profound existential objective way 
and expedites our experience of our union with Christ by winging us to heaven and joining us to the human accomplishments of the Lord Jesus. It's in those experiences he lifts us out of the slough of despond and calms our anxious hearts and expedites our sanctification. Brothers and sisters, I was thrilled when I saw the title of this, the theme of this General Assembly, come to the table, because it's what I'm anxious to compel you to do this evening. Come to this table. You feel despised, you feel weak, you feel foolish, you are ashamed of your past, you're guilt-ridden, you're terrified. As you have heard the word of God preached, now come and experience it sealed to your consciences, the assurance of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the once for all satisfying atonement made by your beloved Savior. And expect by faith that you will become more faithful to your vows, that you'll be given that burst of energy you need for perseverance, that the back of that besetting sin will be broken. Come. Come hungrily. Come thirsty. Come, my brothers and sisters, and be encouraged by Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my church, for my brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and the covenant children gathered here. And I pray that not one of my dear covenant family would leave this place believing the lie of the devil that he or she is disqualified to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, but rather speak of those so-called disabilities as your abilities to get the glory through unlikely people like us. In Jesus' name we pray. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.